Hey, Gabe. Hey, what's up, Tim? In the movie Miracle Mile, two young people plan a date night that starts at 12 midnight and quickly escalates to a daring escape from Los Angeles before nuclear war. So what's your issue with the nuke plot, though? I actually have nothing to nitpick about the nuke plot, but the idea of starting a date night at midnight sounds exhausting and unrealistic. Maybe I'm just getting too old. No, Tim, I I think you're just being super critical again. Welcome to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun, oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear nonproliferation for a living. I am joined in the podcast studio slash Zoom with my co-host, Gabe. Gabe, welcome to the show. Hey, Tim. How's it going? Hello from the, the bunker. We're on day uh, <laughs> 670,000 whatever of quarantine. I don't know. It's great to have you here. Uh, you're not a nuke person like me. What uh, What's your, your your claim to fame to be on this episode? Well, uh, it's very interesting to say that. I met you about uh, six years ago now, and uh, I guess I'm a glutton for punishment, and <laughs> my life is too happy, and I need to be depressed by learning about nuclear weapons, and so I decided that I'd come along for this ride. Well, I, I'm glad that's your frame of mind entering into this, because I picked a doozy for us today, the 1988 movie... Miracle Mile, where a meet-cute between two star-crossed lovers turns into a wild night of possible Chicken Little-induced nuclear war hysteria. You know, Gabe, your classic rom-com romp to DEFCON 1 story? Oh, jeez. And, uh, (laughs) other than the corny jokes, uh, bonus, it takes place in your hometown. Well, not hometown, but in Southern California, right? Close enough, yeah. It's, uh, it was definitely fun to see all the old, the old spots. Uh, and before they caught on fire. So this movie was directed by Steve DeJarnett. He's also a writer of uh, Strange Brew, which has a connection to the last episode we did on this podcast, because Strange Brew, uh, Dave Thomas, and Dan Aykroyd, they made the movie Spies Like Us. So Steve wrote this movie after having nightmares about nuclear war, and then worked on it uh, in the studio system for 10 years to get it made. Oh, that sounds like uh, what I have to deal with after doing this podcast. It's constant nightmares about maybe I'll make a movie one day too. Yeah, I mean a movie about a guy who uh, just you know finds keeps finding a way to even when we're connect- disconnected from from each other in each other's respective basements, you still end up getting in on this stuff. Yeah, that, exactly. that's a horror story I've ever heard one. <laughs> So this movie, I think, has got a pretty good cast. Um, before we kind of get into how it was received, it's got some good people in it. Uh, Anthony Edwards, who a lot of people know from ER, uh, he's right off of uh, Top Gun uh, from uh, from his role as Goose. Really? Yeah. Uh, that I did not. I didn't. Oh, I, Same guy. I, I have to go check it out. That I did not realize. Yeah, I think I first ran into him as uh, one of the characters in Revenge of the Nerds. Uh, but he plays a character named Harry, who is a big band musician in a blue suit, uh, who meets the the love of his. Uh, well, maybe potential love of his life, however short that may end up being. I figured you like this character, given your kind of love of jazz. Yeah, I I, I kind of got into that, but it was uh, we'll, we'll get into it in the plot. It just kind of <laughs> came out of nowhere. It was very strange. We also have Mari Winningham. She plays a character named Julie. Uh, she is one of the original members, uh, the actress of the Brat Pack mo- movies, uh, particularly one Saint Elmo's Fire, which was filmed at uh, where I did my masters at Georgetown University. She plays a waitress who meets Harry at the La Brea Tar Pits in Los 
Angeles and then lives with her grandparents. And then for you, there's quite a number of Star Trek people. Yeah, Denise Crosby, Tasha Yar, the Enterprise uh, Chief of Security as Londa, <laughs> this mysterious businesswoman who hangs out at diners at uh, like 11 o'clock at night or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there's also a couple other people. Um, you got the person who played Bubba from Forrest Gump and the TV show uh, Justified. You have a bunch of other cameos. Uh, Earl Bowen, uh, who played the Doctor Shrink character in the Terminator movie series, uh, which is also nuke-related. Uh, you got uh, Jeanette Goldstein, who plays a space marine in Aliens, also nuke-related. And Eddie Bunker, who played Mr. Blue in Reservoir Dogs. Uh, not nuke-related. And um, one of my favorite cameos in this movie, Brian Thompson, uh, who was the bad guy in the Sylvester Stallone movie Cobra. He was also in a lot of X-Files shows, and he was five different roles on Star Trek, including TNG, Deep Space Nine, Enterprise, and even Orville. The kind ah, of Star Trek the spinoff, yeah, yeah, the latest Star Trek series, apparently. So it's a pretty, I think it's a pretty good cast. Um, the movie was very well received with critics. Uh, it's got ninety percent fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, but of course, uh, the movie you probably have not heard of it didn't do so well. It didn't get a huge theatrical release. Only one hundred and forty-three theaters made just around a million dollars on a three point seven million dollar budget. But it's had a great run on the uh, home market and it's considered a bit of a cult classic. It's a movie that people in the new community have heard of. 1983, the reason why it got made was uh, Miracle Mile was chosen by American Film Magazine as one of the 10 best unproduced screenplays circulating in Hollywood. The soundtrack uh, was, I think, is pretty good. It's by Tangerine Dream, a German electronica band. Uh, they've done over 60 movie scores, such as Risky Business, Legend, Firestarter, even some a lot of the songs in GTA V are uh, by um, Tangerine Dream. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and uh, this is you know, a little behind-the-scenes stuff. It was also considered to be the plot of when they decided to make a movie about the Twilight Zone. It was originally kind of one of the ideas for that. And uh, Nick Cage uh, was attached to the movie for a little while. Paul Newman, do apparently. Mean, do you mean Nuke Cage? Nuke Cage. Yeah, we've cut a lot of Nuke Cage movies. A lot of Nuke Cage movies in one episode. And mm-hmm. Paul Newman, he was also, apparently had read the script but ended up making another Nuke movie around those years, uh, the movie Fat Man and Little Boy, which we've covered previously on the podcast. So a lot, lot of background there on the movie Miracle Mile. Before we dive in, there's two big questions I want to be thinking about as we talk about the movie. One, this movie has a very similar starting point to a lot of the Nuke movies that we've talked about previously. You know, a, a possible nuclear attack, a rumors of a nuclear attack and people uh, on the ground trying to respond to that. The unique element here is this budding romance. And I think it's very much a unique take. So we'll try to see how well this pulls it off. And secondly, how this movie uses time as a motif, Uh, not only in terms of the real time pacing of the movie, basically two thirds of it take place within an hour, you know, real time 24 style, uh, but also as a strong theme and things like how much time you have left to deal with nuclear dangers and how the world can end so quickly when nuclear weapons are unleashed. Yeah, just just the really, you know, light stuff that you'd expect from a a, a romantic uh, rom-com rom. This is a, it's, it's not even one of those time travel romantic comedies. So let's run through the plot of the movie. And as usual, spoiler warning, if you have not seen this movie from 1988, it's on Amazon Prime um, streaming and a couple other places. I don't know where you watched it, Gabe. That's where I watched it. I did. Uh, yeah, I did Prime. Amazon Prime has been getting a lot of my money recently. From, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I keep giving them $4 uh, every, every month or so. This is one of those things where as soon as I finished watching the movie in Amazon Prime, I was like, ah, I want to buy the Blu-ray because the Blu-ray has got a better cut of the movie love can sure spin your head around god where do you begin well hello 
We must have been meant to be together. It's too bad you have to work tonight. Only till midnight. Fate is a funny thing. Take a nap, because you're going to need all your energy tonight. It was one of those strange nights that could ruin your whole day in a big way. Dad, it's happening. This is it. This is really it. This is the big one. This is a joke, right? It's really happening. 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 This can't be true. We'll all be dead if we don't get out of here. Nobody believes this, do they? We gotta get Julie. Stop and let me off. I don't stop for nothing. Jump! Don't hurt me, man. I, mean, I got Nakamichi Pioneer. I got everything. If it doesn't happen, I'll tell you. If what doesn't happen, man? I'm dreaming. That's, that's it, I'm dreaming. Y'all ready to go? You the pilot? Hey! Hey, do you know anybody can fly a helicopter? Helicopter pilot. All the helicopter pilot bars are closed. What's the problem? It's true. Love can be exciting. Trust me with this. Even terrifying. Julie! Video! I love you. But nothing could prepare you for an experience like this. What is it, you Miracle Mile. Listen, I'm just a guy who can pick up the phone. Our heroes, Harry and Julie, start this movie by visiting the La Brea Tar Pits Museum in Los Angeles. And this is a really cool place. I've, I've been here before. You know, it's an open-air tar pit. Uh, and there's a museum next to it. So it's a place where dinosaurs used to hang out. And then some of them died and fell in the tar pit. And they've been pulling out uh, various skeletons and and things uh, ever since. I have a weird obsession with, I don't know why, but I saw this on TV when I was like younger and I've always been upset. It just seemed like a really creepy idea that in the middle of the city, there was like this, you know, petroleum sludge coming up. When we were in uh, Los Angeles some years ago, I made it a point to visit. You wouldn't expect to find them in the middle of a major city, but but that's LA, I guess. It's it's pretty cool. And it's apparently a great place to meet people. Harry narrates his his life and how he's a, he feels like he's a romantic at heart, but never has really been and, uh, had a chance to ha- be romantic with anybody, but then he meets Julie. They have this little montage where they're flirting together in the museum. Then they spend the day around Los Angeles, and it seems like you know, hey, probably we'll just ex- that that'll be the rest of the movie, right? This blossoming young love. Uh, not so much. <laughs> That's yeah. what we're talking about here. One thing I will say, the the intro that was interesting was this museum. It's kind of showing like a um, a montage of like human progress, mm-hmm. how we evolved from like single cell organisms and we built this great society over tens of thousands of years and the pace of human progress it's all this at the same time i actually thought that was kind of well done and yeah sets the stage for some of the themes later on how long it takes to build up a civilization and then see how quickly we can knock it back down well so after this uh this little romantic uh, interlude uh, they harry and julie go to a restaurant and buy a bunch of lobsters that they set free into the ocean. You know, kind of very quirky things you do when you first meet somebody. There's a, a little bit of foreshadowing uh, for the end of the movie where Julie makes a comment that the, the lobsters look so cramped in this water tank and how they want to set them free. We get one more kind of scene here. We get Julie takes her grandpa, who she who she, they lives with her grandparents, uh, Ivan is his name, to one of Harry's big band concerts uh, out in, in Los Angeles. Turns out that Ivan and his wife, Lucy, have been fighting for 15 
15 plus years. No one really remembers what they've been feuding about. Uh, they don't talk to each other anymore, but it's a kind of a sad little thing there. Yeah. After that scene is done, Perry drops Julie off at her job, uh, which is at a, a Johnny's Diner on Miracle Mile, kind of a cool looking diner. And they make a, a plans for a second date. Dancing. They're going to go out dancing starting at 12, 15 a.m. They're going to meet up at the diner. So, Tim, can you explain to me Miracle Mile? Because I've, you know, I, I know it's like a, is it a street? Is it a neighborhood? I've heard this so many times and I've never, I want to hear this from a real <laughs> native uh, who can explain. So I've not been there in a long time. Uh, I know they've changed a bit, but not a lot. Miracle Mile is like a district. It's it's a lot of it is known mostly for this one particular street, but but it's a famous district where there was a lot of museums and retail shops, uh, kind of historic Art Deco buildings. At one point when they started building it, it was all oil fields, and then okay. they kind of slowly started to build on top of it. Harry says himself in the movie that it looks like a place out of time, you know, which is yeah. foreshadowing <laughs> as well. I, I really love, by the way, the, the setting of the diner. Mm-hmm. Um, just the whole it has this like wonderful retro vibe it looks very familiar to me it's probably been in other movies I, I'm kind of a sucker for that like 1950s space age inspired and this actually put me down a google uh, rabbit hole to research googie architecture which is apparently <laughs> what this was um, so I very much appreciated that but it looked super familiar I'm assuming it's been in other movies Oh yeah, tons. Big Lebowski, Volcano, Reservoir Dogs, American History X. It uh, was used and rented out for quite a while. Even Bernie Sanders at one point had his uh, campaign headquarters in Los Angeles uh, over there. I think they renamed it Bernie's Shop or Bernie's Diner, something like that. I think it's not operating now, but it is available for rental if you want to go in and have an old style diner as part of one of your movies. There's also one little kind of fun wrinkle that the director threw in here. There's a mascot who kind of looks like if people know about the the restaurant franchise Bob's Big Boy, which is a kind of yeah. all in the Midwest and in Southern yeah. California as well. They take Bob's Big Boy and they give him a little hat and he's called Fat Boy, which is a fun, um, obviously kind of combo of Fat Man and Little Boy, which were the atomic bomb names detonated over Japan uh, 75 years ago. Not many people would have picked up on that. No, no. <laughs> it was it delighted me anyways. So Harry, you know, he's he knows that he's going to be in for it tonight uh starting a date at 12 15 a.m so he goes home he takes a nap to recharge his batteries but before he does he lights a cigarette kind of takes a second and, and says uh his his last name with julie's first name it's like okay i could see this working out decides i guess he doesn't want to smoke anymore so he flicks the cigarette onto the floor and what happens a crow picks it up brings it to the roof brings it into the nest the nest catches on fire and causes a shortage of the electrical system because the nest was on top of some wires poor uh harry he his, his alarm doesn't go off because the power's out and he wakes up finally when power is restored at around 3 45 a.m so this is several hours since uh, julie's been waiting there at the diner yeah she was she was not happy because I mean, she thinks that she got stood up right and i loved um she's standing outside the diner there's this like suspended digital clock that's mm-hmm. spinning and it like spins and as it spins the hours like grow and grow or the minutes and hours grow and grow so it's kind of like this very uh, strong reminder of the passage of time which we've seen in some of our other uh, it seems to be a theme in these nuclear movies well it's it's perfect for the movie it introduces you to the idea there's a clock and there's time and that clock will show you how things change because later on it becomes a reference point for 
of the rest of the movie about how we'll talk about in a second here, how most of the movie is in real time, meaning they say something's going to happen in an hour. And then they show you the entirety of that hour. They don't cut away for long periods of time like normally a movie would. Pretty much this whole movie takes place within 24 hours. And this is about like 20 years before Jack Bauer. So. Right, right. <laughs> where, where they got the idea. There's nukes in that one too. He realizes his mistake. He gets in his car. He picks up some flowers and he drives to the diner. But Julie is already gone. She's at home. She's t- she, didn't, she took like a, a Valium to go to sleep because she was pretty upset by the whole thing. So she's out cold, not even answering the phone. There's no cell phones in this. Lots of pay phones. Lot picking up the phone, put it in the corner. No, there's one cell phone, and it's like the size of a... We'll get into that. It's like the size of like a giant brick. It's amazing. <laughs> Harry gets to the diner, crashes his car a little into some palm trees, and a bunch of rats fall onto the hood. You know, foreshadowing quite a bit in this movie. Tries to call Julie. Obviously, she's not going to answer. We get to meet instead some kind of interesting groups of people at the diner. Uh, some patrons, some people that work at the diner. Uh, it's a good mix of the kind of crowd you would end up seeing in Los Angeles at a diner around uh, 3.45 a.m. Are you speaking from experience there, Tim? Uh, very much, very much so. I might spend a few few nights around that time uh, in that area. So we've, we've got two loudmouth idiots, uh, which is a pretty awful uh, sexual harasser. We've got a drag queen. We've got a drunk businessman talking about the best barbecue place in town, which is very ominous. Best place to get cooked ribs. We've got a passed out lady uh, who's reading tarot cards, you know. Also pretty ominous. And we've got someone dressed like an airplane steward uh, practicing for a crash, which I think is probably the most ominous of all these individuals. We've got a waitress friend of Julie's, Fred, the owner. He's got a gun, uh, which we'll find out a little bit later. I like this actor a lot. He was the boss cop in Robocop. And uh, we meet Landa. You mentioned earlier, this very mysterious businesswoman who's got a huge brick mobile phone, (laughs) like a Zach Morris style phone. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Landa. She's interesting. She opens up a briefcase when she comes into the diner, which very well could have been a stand-in for the nuclear football emergency satchel, presidential emergency satchel, the thing that the president would use and carries around uh, with him all, all the time that could launch a nuclear attack. She opens this up and inside she has cliff notes, not the actual book, but cliff notes for the book Gravity's Rainbow, which is a 1973 novel by Thomas Pynchon. I have never read this book, but I've read the Wikipedia entry. This apparently is a very trippy story set in Europe at the end of World War II, and it centers on the design, production, and dispatch of the V-2 rockets by the German military. So it seems like Landon enjoys reading at least the plot of these kind of books, so she can talk about it at, a, at a, like a cocktail party and not necessarily have to read the whole thing. Apparently the whole book is like thousands of pages. This, I, this, this whole thing, like her, this character... It's such like an over-the-top caricature and it's just so out of place. Like, Mm. what is this woman with the cliff notes and the cell phone doing at this diner with all these other shady characters at midnight? It just... She just closed some deals, man. She's a businesswoman. She she, she wants some eggs after closing some deals. Why isn't she like a, I don't know, like some upscale, I I don't know. It's, it's, it was out of place for me. One of many different out of place things in this movie for me, but, but anyway, she's, she's there. Yeah. Johnny's got the best, uh, best eggs in, uh, in town. Give me all the eggs you have. <laughs> yeah. She's reading the cliff notes of this book, uh, Gravity's Rainbow. I guess the plot has something to do with the character trying to uncover a mystery about the V2 rockets. And a theme of it is whether or not this person is uncovering this great mystery of, you know, tremendous importance or is just paranoid and is kind of going crazy. Apparently, the book ends with a nuke missile landing on a movie theater in Los Angeles. So very, very ominous. Uh, the V-2 rockets, as well as people know, is the, the precursor for the intercontinental ballistic missiles that carry nuclear weapons across the globe. 
So this is an interesting little bit of introduction here, but we the main thing is Harry just wants to meet that girl again, trying to hopefully make it right the next day. Maybe she'll, I think he talks about, uh, he leaves a message saying that he will take her for some breakfast champagne and brunch. And, but here's where the plot gets interesting. He tries to call Julie, but she's asleep. He walks away, buys a newspaper, and then he hears the phone ring again. At this payphone outside of the diner. And he picks it up again, maybe thinking that it's Julie. But instead, it's this guy named Chip who's on the phone and is frantically trying to reach his dad to tell him that in 70 minutes, there's going to be a nuclear war. Dad, it's me, Chip. How come the phone was busy just now? Jesus. Look, I had to wake you. It's, it's happening. I can't believe it, but we're locked into it. 50 minutes and counting. Christ, it is... I'm sorry, Dad. I shouldn't swear. I'm sorry, but this is it. This is really it. This is the big one. Thor Arthur 66 AZD. You know, like I told you, what would happen if it ever came down? Well, it is. We don't know why. I mean, why would we, huh? But it's for real, Dad. There's no drill. We shoot our wad in 50 minutes. They're going to pick us up in 5 or 10, and you can get it back in an hour and 10, maybe 75 minutes. What exactly are you talking about? I'm talking about nuclear war. Who is this? Oh, where's my dad? Go get my dad! Your dad? Look, 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 there's nobody here. Where, where, where's he supposed to be? How the hell would I know? You're in Orange County. I'm in North Dakota. Hey, is this some kind like of prank or something? Prank? Prank? Oh, God. Is this 254-9411? Uh, yeah, 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 it is. But it, listen, it, it's just a phone booth. It, it's, a, it's a phone booth at a coffee shop. I, I heard it ringing. Is this 714? Did I dial 213? Shit! Oh. Uh, I think they heard me. Shit. Oh, man, they see me on the monitor. Uh, and I patched into the red line XCOM to do this. Look, they're gonna nail my ass. Tell Dad. Just tell him. This is a joke, right? He says that they're locked in to fire in 50 minutes. The other side will hit us back in 70 minutes. So, you know, 70 minutes is, had, is really all you got. I thought this dialogue, I don't know if you thought, you know, maybe you didn't enjoy the whole movie, but I thought this dialogue from Chip on the other side was, was pretty good, very haunting. I don't know. See, once again, I was not buying it really. Because mm. if I heard this payphone ring and I just heard some dude rambling about this stuff, and I think at one point, Harry does say, like, hey, is this a joke, mister? I wouldn't take it seriously. I would just hang up, you know? Mm -hmm. And, like, what are the, the odds of it being a joke for me are so much greater than the odds that some guy actually accidentally called this payphone from a nuclear silo. I just, I didn't really buy, I know this is a plot device to get the story started, but I had trouble buying it. I Well, I think it's fair. I mean, I don't think, I don't think Harry believed it at first. He, he basically... Trip is saying things like, you know, I told you, Dad, this was going to be the big one. I would told you it was going to happen. It was going to happen like this. We don't know why. Uh, we're going to launch our weapons in 50 minutes. They're going to pick it up in 5 or 10 on radar, and we'll get it back in an hour 10, maybe 75 minutes. I did the math on this because it's how I do these things. 
Uh, this is actually pretty close to a real-life scenario. I think in this scenario, they're probably doing the assumption that Russia would hit the United States with submarine-launched weapons, because assuming all this math, you know, you can just trust me on it, it assumes a 15-minute flight time, which is what an ICBM would be if it was launched out of a submarine, a submarine-launched ballistic missile. Those are tend to be around 15 minutes because they're on the coast. They're a little bit closer to their targets. It takes 30 minutes for the land-based weapon in Russia and the United States to hit each other. But anyways, he gives a code name for the attack. Then you hear gunfire on the other side and someone else picks up the phone harry says is this a joke and harry gets the the ominous message back forget everything you just heard and go back to sleep forget everything you just heard and go back to sleep. So you're right. I mean, you know, we don't really know for a while if uh, any of this stuff is real. All we know, right, is there's a guy on the other side who's saying that he's from right. North Dakota. And that he's in a missile field, and the and the weapons are incoming. Yeah, I don't know. I I'm surprised he even gave this a second thought. Right? If I heard that, I would just be like, "Oh, this is just some crazy." It's twelve o'clock, like, and also who's uh, I don't know. So this is at four o six a.m. So maybe it was he just didn't have enough coffee. Okay, okay. Right, and he's trying to figure yeah. this out. Harry is definitely freaking out. Right, so he goes back in the diner and he tries to kind of talk through this issue with everybody else because I'm not sure he 100% feels that it's real, but he's 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 talking about it. So he has a a stress induced nosebleed and he grabs an entire carafe of coffee out of a waitress's hand and just starts drinking it to kind of process and get clarity on what happened, which is probably what I would do if I got a phone call like this. I think the thing that convinces him is Landa. Landa seems to know what's happening. Yeah. Uh, she says that she has an ex that she used to date who works at the Rand Corporation, uh, which is a, a real life think tank that is kind of a part public, part private company that does a lot of research and planning for the U.S. government. Particularly in the 1950s, they were very famous for being a major research center for the U.S. Air Force, who managed all of our nuclear weapons for quite a while. And they did a lot of the initial theory of how you understand nuclear deterrence. How do you use a nuclear weapon? And if anyone remembers in Dr. Strangelove, uh, they call it the Bland Corporation in right. that one. So we're not sure who she was dating, but she seems to know what's going on. The patrons are kind of arguing amongst themselves. Some of them said, oh, I've had nightmares about the atomic bomb. Can you repeat the conversation to me, please? Verbatim, if you can. Um, yeah, okay. Come on! Nobody believes this, do they? Go ahead. Okay, well, I answered the phone because it was ringing. And the guy, he just, he just started yelling, um, Dad, Dad, it's happening. The, the big one, we're locked in. Thor Arthur, uh, 66 DDZ. Wait a minute. Say that last part again. It's, uh, Thor Arthur, 66 DDZ. And then he started going, um, oh my God, we shoot off our wad in 50 minutes. He was just trying to call his dad in Orange County. And then, uh, and then he said, they see me on the monitor. And then someone came in and, and he started going, uh, uh, yes, sir. Uh, no, sir. And they shot him. And Landa, she brings up some stuff, right? She talks about her political friend. She calls a senator's uh, staff member. And they were all reporting that they're being moved to some sort of secret location. So I think this is where it starts to get crazy. She mentions she thinks this is real. She's probably has heard of this before. So what does she do? 
She gets a whole team together to do an evacuation plan. She picks up this Zach Morris-style uh, telephone that we talked about earlier, and yeah. she starts playing play some calls, right? She calls everybody, uh, gets gets a helicopter set up, gets a plane fueled on a, on a, on a runway. Uh, she starts, uh, call, she tells someone to get a list of famous leaders and things ready for, to, so they can pick them up. People like Carl Sagan, I think that she calls him on the phone and tells him it's, uh, you know, you knew this was going to happen. Here we go. Pretty, pretty crazy. One of my favorite people that they put on this list is Pat Riley, the coach of the Lakers at that time. <laughs> uh, but anyways, um, I would just say, man, you're on you're on my list, uh, given your your pilot background in this scenario. So keep your phone oh, handy. You. Yeah, my my the Cessna 172 that I fly can really outrun a nuclear blast. <laughs> But the weird thing about this is as the, as this is going on, like all the people in the diner are like going nuts. Yeah. Yeah. They're like losing their mind. The owner just like pulls out a gun and starts shouting like crazy. It was very weird. It felt like the way that people would react if I was like dreaming about something, people just acting re- erratically. It's already a strange mm-hmm. cast of characters to begin with, but this this news, like, I guess already sets everyone crazy instantly as we figure out, like, that these are going to be the people who are going to repopulate the earth, I guess. <laughs> these, like, diner folk. Because they're going to go, the plan is for them to go to Antarctica, right? That was the idea. They're going to. I think the idea here is why this works so well with me. Everybody at that diner knows each other. It seems like they're all regulars, including Landa. People respect Landa. The owner of the diner, Fred, the guy with the gun, I mean, he seems like he really respects Landa. He put the television on the stock quotes, changes like from the sports and to the stock quotes right. while she's there. So basically because she says this is legit, like a code name and what's going on, it's real. I think that basically starts this whole thing. And I also kind of think that you're you're feeling that this is dreamlike and not sure if it's real and why would people react this way? That is a completely rational reaction to what's going on in the in the, in the movie. We don't even know yeah. yet if yeah. any of this is real. We're not going to know if this is real until the last frames of the of the movie, basically. So any sort of feeling you're having is, I think, part of it. And uh, so th- for me, seeing people freak out like this and starting to make their own plans, I think works pretty well for me. You know, Harry hears that Landa is going to, has arranged a helicopter to leave the roof of the nearby mutual benefit in- building, uh, which is a, like a life insurance company, and that it's going to leave, the helicopter is going to leave at 5 a.m. So they don't have a ton of time. So, all right, let's get real for a second. Let's say you're in the diner, Tim. What are you going to do? Are you going to, what's your move? Do you go to the helicopter? Do you try to drive home and get Jen? How do you handle it? Have my eggs arrived yet? (laughs) No, you have not eaten. You're hungry. Uh, I'll grab a coffee carafe. I'll place a phone call to Gabe to meet me with his uh, Cessna, land his Cessna on top of a building. No, it's a good question, man. It's like, what would you do in this situation? Would you try to probably try to save somebody, right? Like, what's the point of uh, try to at least save Jen and the baby? Yeah. Uh, But I don't. The hardest part about this whole story is is that there is a a mission. People seeming like at this point, they're all going to be together. Like, Fred is the boss of Julie. And then when Harry says, Fred, let's get in the car. Fred loads up his, his like catering truck with everybody and they start to drive to the airport. He says, yeah. let's uh, stop to get Julie. And Fred's like, sure, no problem. But of course, Fred's never going to stop. He's just going to yeah. make time, get over to the airport. So Harry has to steal Fred's gun and jump out of the back of the car. You get the sense like everybody's kind of together, but it very easily will simply say, no, forget it. 
Like, I'm not going to support you. If you're with me and you're going to help carry cans, great. But if you're not, get out of the way. And you get a lot of those kind of situations here. So I think the panicked feel of how people react to this is seems to me pretty realistic for this scenario. You know, even Harry starts to get a little nuts. I mean, he's he seems like a very milk toast kind of guy. I mean, he's yeah. he's playing Glenn Miller, you know, jazz <laughs> by by the way. And then he steals the gun and tries to hijack the truck and then jumps out of the truck and then commandeers a car at gunpoint. I mean, carjacks somebody at gunpoint. This yeah. is uh Drive by like his character, character Wilson. Played by McKelty Williamson, who was, as you mentioned, was Bubba in uh, Forrest Gump. Mm-hmm. And and even him, I mean, you can tell he's just, he's gone, he's gone crazy also by this. This is uh, ratcheted up the insanity a little bit. He's, he's going a little bit nuts. He says, uh, hey, there's some kind of major accident that's going to happen and everyone's in here in LA is going to die. But you'll be safe if you're just with me. So he starts telling a little bit of lies so that he can get what he wants, which is to get to Julie and get out of town, get to the top of the building uh, by 5 a.m. We find out that, that Harry's uh, Harry needs to stay, make a quick stop because Wilson's car is out of gas. They try to go to this gas station. Uh, there's a racist night manager. He holds both of them up at gunpoint, demands money for gas, all that kind of stuff. The police, of course, show up because there's a there's a shotgun involved. There's a situation because Wilson is not just a, a regular guy. He's also someone who apparently steals stereo equipment, uh, which is a very prob- problematic stereotype uh, for um, that wasn't even a pun there. A problematic stereotype for for characters in the uh, in the 1980s. Uh, but anyway, so Wilson freaks out because he's about to be arrested, and he knows that if he gets arrested he's going to die in LA. So he sprays gasoline on the cops. The cops fire a gun when they're blinded by the gasoline that causes a huge fire. So already Harry better hope that this is a real nuclear attack because he's now been implicated in in murder. Yeah, the stakes have been raised seriously. So, uh, and Harry continues to lie to Wilson. He says there's a nuclear meltdown nearby at a nuclear power plant and there's a radiation cloud coming to LA, which is, you know, this movie came out in 1988. Uh, so you would say roughly that's kind of when the the story got would take place. Chernobyl, that accident was in Ukraine in 1986. Three Mile Island uh, accident in the United States of Pennsylvania, that was in 1979. And that's when the movie was actually first written right around that time period. So this stuff is right on the top of everybody's mind. And there's also another kind of fun thing. Uh, Wilson tells Harry how to operate the car radio in the police car that they just stole. And he says, push the red button twice to make it work. Uh... Fun little... Yeah, push I, the red I button. That. See, I should have I I should have watched this movie with you. I would have gotten so much more out of this if I watched this movie with you. Should have broken quarantine uh, for that. I would have been justified. It'd, it'd be worth. It'd be so worth it. <laughs> All right, so let's do a time check here. We're at four thirty-five a.m. Harry gets to the apartment complex where Julie, the grandfather, grandmother are also living in the same area. They get Julie, but of course Wilson. He leaves. He leaves the. He steals the police car that they already stole, so he can go get his sister. So now Ivan and Lucy have to uh, get their car together, and he's able to convince the the grandmother. Even though the grandmother also has a shotgun, uh, he's like, "Look, I'm not a crazy person. You met me earlier today. There's a nuclear war happening. We have to get Julie out of here." Well, <laughs> Julie is completely passed out because she took that Valium earlier, so they have to put her in a, a shopping cart and kind of get her away. But then there's this really nice tender moment between Ivan and Lucy, who have been fighting this for the last 15 years. Once they uh, kind of see each other in the lobby, they reunite, they fall back in love. I guess the the threat of nuclear war really puts their long-running feud into perspective. And they actually say they're not going to go with Julie and Harry. They're going to drive to Cantor's Deli and have some breakfast before the end of the world. 
for me, you mentioned earlier about whether or not I've done this before. I have been to Cantor's Deli uh, right around that same time period, once around 3 a.m. Uh, after a Lakers basketball game, and I can say this is a brilliant decision. They've got some pretty good sandwiches. Where does this rank on the uh, bef- before the nuclear apocalypse meals? Is it does it make the top ten? Uh, if, if I could do that, uh, have a a double combo of In-N-Out uh, hamburger, In-N-Out double double, and a a Cantor's roast beef. I think that would be a fine way to go. Ooh, that sounds good. <laughs> like they, um, Harry and Julie, who's, Julie's now awake. She's very excited that, that her grandparents are back together. She even accepts Harry's apology for being late. Kind of says, oh yeah, I could see that the power being out. Yeah, that could all make sense. Do you use this tactic, by the way, with Jen? If you like forgot to pick up the groceries, you'd be like, oh, there's, there's like a nuclear war coming. Like I had to get back. I was like, oh, just kidding. She would just think I was having a nuclear nightmare and I took a nap somewhere when I wasn't supposed to. Yeah. Um, but the interesting thing is, is that Harry does not tell Julie immediately about the nuclear war. He just says they're going to do something romantic. They have to go to the roof and, and kind of get out of there. She, Julie doesn't know what's going on. So what does she think about? She's basically talking about how great it is that her grandparents are together again. She says that they swore they would never talk to each other until the day they died. Foreshadowing. Um... So they try to get to the roof of the building. They get to the roof of the building. Harry is like freaking out on the inside while they're in this elevator. Julie's talking about her childhood. Uh, and they get to the roof. And there's a helicopter. There's a bunch of other people. There's a bunch of Landis friends. And there's there's food. There's vitamins. There's guns, drugs, everything you could possibly need in Antarctica uh, to stock up. But there's no helicopter pilot. Gabe, where would you get a helicopter pilot at this hour? They have everything stocked up. But they don't have uh, anyone to fly it. I would go find a 1980s style gym with like neon signage because that's apparently <laughs> where this guy goes to find the helicopter pilot which like for all the serious like uh, you know yeah. points that this movie's trying to make i just like it just got ridiculous i mean he's like running around through the gym first of all it's like who's working out at four like the gym's packed at 4 30 in the morning this is la culture man people do this oh, okay. stuff it's, all right it's... the expert local knowledge by that point you would have had 15 wheatgrass shots and yeah you would have done your yoga taking your cbd and all that <laughs> i think this works because harry he tells julie that he loves her and says stay on this roof and i'm gonna go find a pilot and he doesn't know what to do he starts asking people on the street he talks to a street cleaner he talks to some joggers he runs inside the gym you talked about he tells people he needs a pilot because there's an um, emergency heart transplant i think he just doesn't know what to do uh uh listen excuse me do you know anybody who can fly a helicopter any helicopter pilots hey hey do you know anybody who can fly a helicopter helicopter pilots huh do you know any helicopter pilots any helicopter no Excuse me. Anybody here know any helicopter pilots? Anybody? I said, does anybody here know how to fly a helicopter? Oh, God, please don't shoot. Listen, it's an emergency. It's for a heart transplant. I don't think you're going to stop and sit and go, hmm, okay, well, let me open up the phone book and look at helicopter pilot. He just is like, there has to be someone who knows someone that's a helicopter pilot. And he's just... He knows he's got 20, 30 minutes before the end of the world. 
He's just going to do whatever he can within the area. Yeah. And he does find somebody. He finds somebody that's on a, on a Nordic press. He says that he's you know, a helicopter pilot, used to fly Hueys and things like that. So what does Harry do? He lies again. He says there's a toxic fire and there's a cyanide cloud coming to town. The guy, he says, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. Does I got to bring somebody? So he brings someone to the helicopter. But of course, Julie finds out that nuclear war is the reason why they're on the roof and that they need a pilot. At one point, one of the other characters say that uh, Los Angeles Basin is a total overkill sector. So she's freaking out now. So she goes looking for a pilot. A lot of these like were almost there. If she just stayed there and Harry met up with her, then I'm sure they would be fine. But a lot of yeah. these moments of people trying to, to sort through something. Or if they had a helicopter big enough to carry like the 20 people that are on the roof. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> let's forget about that for a second. They'll have to make a couple of trips. So Julie and Harry, they meet up. But of course, what happens is that there's all of a sudden this, remember the cop car with Wilson and his sister? Well, that yeah. crashes now kind of randomly into a department's door. They run in to find out what's going on. It turns out that Harry, um, you know, freaked Wilson out enough that he got his sister. But because they had just killed some cops and stole a police car, Harry finds Wilson and his sister shot up. They're bleeding out. They're dying on this escalator. This very sad scene where Wilson's trying to carry his sister up an escalator that's going down and he can't make any sort of progress. Very, I, I think it was a pretty moving scene. And this is when Julie agrees with you, Gabe. Maybe the story about a nuclear war is not real. She says that Landa's yeah. telling everybody there's a nuclear war, but who told her about this? It was it was Harry. And maybe maybe they called the war off because it's been over an hour at that point. And this is where I think Harry starts to really wonder, is this like a Chicken Little situation? You know, the story about Chicken Little who tells everybody that the sky is falling and it's not, but it causes a panic and people start freaking out. You know, I think even the characters themselves are kind of wondering, you know, what's, what's actually going on? on oh well they're in this department store surrounded by clocks clearly telling people as well hey you're running out of time to make a decision about whether or not this is real the the department store scene it definitely was this kind of turning point in the movie um because it really before this it's just harry running around and talking to some random people about this but uh you know this the stakes get raised the the police surround the building Mm because i guess I guess Wilson, you know, he had stolen the car, so he was caught in a police chase, shot by the police, uh, crashes in, the police surround the building, uh, Harry and Julie try to figure out if they're going to surrender, you know, themselves to the cops and try to talk themselves out of it. And the cops just kind of mysteriously drive away in a hurry. When Julie's going to basically turn them, turn them in. Exactly. And after this turning point, it devolves into... I guess what you would expect, the classic, you know, city panic. It reminds me of when we did the the uh, movie Atomic Train on this podcast. And it's just, you know, shots of people rioting and going crazy and trying to grab all their belongings and crashing into each other. So, yeah, this this definitely was a turn in the movie. The movie started to make a little bit more sense for me after mm-hmm. this in terms of the, you know, mass panic behavior. Um, it's kind of implied, too, that that Harry is the one who like started all this, that he's the, you know, cause he did, I mean, he got the phone call, but I, I think he's trying to reconcile with this like chaos that he created and, and, uh, but not, not by his own fault. Right. He is trying to figure out, did I, did I start this or do people, other, other people starting to hear something? Uh, maybe they didn't get a call from Chip because Chip is uh, is dead, but maybe they're seeing troop movements. Maybe there was some kind of rumor in the news. I think that's a big thing. People don't really know what's going on. Um, everybody is a bystander in this in this story. And it's, that's one of the reasons why I like that scene so much in the department store. Because Julie, she's talking in this scene. If you want to take it literally, 
She's talking about how they're going to turn themselves into the police because they're just bystanders. They didn't do anything. It's not their fault. But if you read this, which like I did, and I think the writer is super brilliant about this, is if you read this as Harry and Julie are average everyday people who are have nothing to do with whether or not a nuclear war is about to start. Right, they're just right. people trying to deal with this. And you then think about this in the context of that. It's really great. So you have Julie. She says, you know, you and that kid didn't shoot anybody, did you? Harry says they were blinded. They just pulled their own trigger and blew themselves up. And then Julie says, well, we've got to tell them something. We have to tell them something before they start shooting. I'll go out there. I'll tell them that we just we just walked in on this. We were just bystanders. We didn't we didn't know what was happening in here. And I think that's pretty good uh, writing for the idea of of people in this scenario, what they would be doing and thinking about, and ultimately what they're what they can do in the big picture of a nuclear war uh, incoming. Yeah, well, and I mean, I wonder if that, as you're reading this now, I'm wondering, does that make a broader point about nuclear weapons in general that we've sure. all kind of, um, you know, stood by as countries have armed themselves and, you know, we've just kind of stood by and, and gotten comfortable with it because of mutually assured destruction and all that. That, that is a, a big piece of it. If, if a city is destroyed, and this was the argument that people made about Japan and uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the Japanese people knew what their, their government was doing. If, if they wanted to stop this, they could have done something about it. And the consequences of that is that they got destroyed by an atomic bomb. That's an argument that people made at the time that, that certain historians have made. I would argue that that's a little bit more complicated than that. But this is the idea here is that if we are just going to be standing by and not do anything about this, you can't really be a bystander in this situation. You need to be concerned and caring and, you know, marching about the, the dangers that are there or electing people who think that maybe we should be trying to do something different than just relying on the luck of a nuclear deterrence preventing war. But anyway, so Harry is trying to figure this out. So Harry goes back to the diner with Julie. He calls Chip's father because he knows the number. He just got the guy when Chip called, he got the wrong area code. So he calls and... Uh-oh, the, the story's a little bit confirmed that he does have a son who probably works at a classified military facility in North Dakota. And we can talk a little bit about North Dakota, if you like, because North Dakota is in real life a place where there are nuclear missiles and nuclear missile silos. And I just wanted to kind of talk a little bit about that because I think it is interesting. People don't tend to think about North Dakota as the place where we keep all of our nuclear weapons. But in Northwest North Dakota, there is the 91st Missile Wing, where they have three, quote unquote, fields of uh, Minuteman three intercontinental ballistic missiles. These are spread up across around 8,500 square miles, and it's located around Minot uh, Air Force Base. And they've been there since 1968. Gabe, you actually kind of visited not in North Dakota, but in South Dakota, where we kind of had some historic uh, locations for these. You did this pretty recently, right? Yes, I I recently took a, a road trip from Washington D.C. to all the way out. We actually made it all the way to Washington State because um, of COVID, uh, and we we drove through North Dakota. Uh, but we came back via South Dakota, where we went through the, uh, we, we visited the Minuteman Missile National Historic Site. No joke. I mean, I, I would have not gone there had I not known you, Tim, and not been involved with this podcast. But basically, the site are a number of missile silos that are kind of preserved, one of which is, uh, they actually have an exhibit there. You can look into the silo, and they have a, a missile sitting there. Obviously, there's no warhead on it, but pretty well. Well done. And, and I got to say, I mean, I, you know, having known you and, and talked about all the nuclear stuff, 
it really added another level to it just and you know the point they make is that it's right on the side of the interstate i forget if it's interstate 80 or 90 that we were on i think it was at interstate 80 and uh it's right to the side of the interstate you would have no idea that, that this was there in the ground and people just you know went about their business right next to the potential place where world war three was going to start it was really wild well this stuff basically was really closely co-located with a lot of like farmland because you're talking about 8,500 square miles. This is in the central heartland of the United States. Yeah. And I don't know if they brought this up at the the museum tour. One of the things that people should think about why we have these missile silos in the middle of the country. Sure, it's a lot of open space. But the reason is, is that we keep a large number of our missiles in the middle of the country because it takes longer for those for the incoming bombers or missiles from the other side to hit the center of the country versus they were located elsewhere. But also there's an idea there, a nuclear deterrence theory, that you want to put a lot of your weapons in the middle of your country and they kind of act like a target sponge to absorb the other side's weapons. Uh, okay. You put them in the middle of the country, and the other side has to put some of their weapons against yours. Otherwise, you're just going to have an endless supply of, of weapons. Right. And you put them far enough apart so that one warhead can't destroy two silos at the same time. But the kind of dirty secret of that is, we've just essentially said, yeah, we'll put all of our weapons in like Wyoming and North Dakota and South Dakota and all this area. And in the event of a nuclear war, that entire middle of the country is just going to become a parking lot, uh, yeah. a radiated parking lot. And the, the heartland will uh, no longer be pumping. The idea. There was a small museum uh, nearby and, and they, have a, they had a video playing. Uh, this was actually instead of in the theater inside it they were playing it outside because of covid hmm. uh, it was a lot of interviews with people who lived in the area and they were you know all these people who were saying that they fought against having this because it was in their backyard and they knew that they were going to be targeted you know the other interesting thing and this resonates with you know things that you said on the podcast we, we talked to a, a ranger there who was very knowledgeable he was on one of the missile wings and he was saying you know you want this stuff very visible so that the other side knows that you mm -hmm. have it. They know where it is. And it just, uh, it was amazing talking to him because there's all these things that you've been saying to him. He was, you know, he was talking about Mervs and all these other concepts. And it was, uh, it was pretty cool. It was, it was a very interesting experience. So in the movie, it's 5.05 a.m. You mentioned riots and panics uh, happening. This is what Harry and, and, and Julie have to run through on their way to the Mutual Benefit Building. There's people looting, there's riots, there's fights, there's people just having sex in the street, because just it's total bedlam and chaos. Harry and Julie separate for a second, they, but they plan on meeting back at the helicopter pad. In this moment of panic, Julie says that she loves Harry. You can forget the fact this movie is supposed to be a love story. You see Harry going to a, a, a TV, he breaks some glass and watches some television on the news, and they talk about unconfirmed rumors of possible nuclear attack. Because even the people reporting the news, you know, don't know whether or not this is real so harry runs out he passes these two older people who are arguing about what the military jets and bombers they see in the sky whether it's a b1 or a b52 both you know nuclear armed you know planes there's car crashes there's there's fighting harry gets chased by a guy with a gun because he jumped on the top of someone's car it's just total panic people are just coming to their their pure primal instincts and if you happen to have a gun in this situation people 
are just going around shooting. Although, as we see in the United States these days, it doesn't take a nuclear war for someone to just start shooting in the middle of a riot and panics. So Harry and Julie, they do meet up in the elevator. They're on their way to the roof, where hopefully the helicopter is waiting for them. But then all of a sudden, the lights and power go out. The elevator stops, and Harry and Julie, you know, think that the attack is happening. It's just about to happen. Right. I think a really tender moment that I liked, Julie says, you know, people are going to support each other, right? They're going to help each other out to rebuild. People are going to help each other, won't they? I mean, rebuilding things. I think it's the insect's turn. And then Harry says, I think it's the insect's turn, uh, which I thought was uh, pretty strong here. This is, of course, a reference to the idea that the only thing that would survive a nuclear attack are cockroaches. This was best put by Jonathan Shell, a philosopher who really has done some of the best writing on, on nuclear danger. It's one of the reasons why I'm in this field at all. He articulated that nuclear war is a hard concept to kind of think about. We, we, we create terms like mega deaths because it's we're talking about millions of deaths. And it's so hard to conceive of what that actually means. You know, you, one person right. in your life passes away. You can understand what that means. 10, 30 million people. People in four hours, what does that even mean? Yeah. So he articulated as nuclear war would reduce the world to a republic of insects and grass. And that essentially would be well, what is left, which I think is a pretty powerful imagery there. Harry says things like, if there's a nuclear detonation, it's going to happen really fast. They're not going to feel anything, but they're going to be together. Julie says, oh, well, even if we're reduced to atoms, our spirit will still be together. And that's, to them, a calming moment, and they embrace. But the it doesn't end there. Yeah, the elevator door opens. So they get to the roof, but the helicopter is missing. <laughs> who's on the roof? But this guy we, we met earlier, uh, one of Landa's friends, who's a, a kind of uh, got all the drugs and assembled a bunch of this stuff. He's played by Kurt Fuller. I love this actor. He's a bad guy in one of my favorite bad movies called No Holds Bar with Hulk Hogan. Okay. He's on the roof. His shirt's off. He's drugged out of his mind. He he's, talks about how oh, I should have believed her. I could have been on the helicopter. I could have been eating penguins in Antarctica with Jacques Cousteau. And he sees off in the distance. We finally realize this is real. We see warheads starting to land off in the distance. See the the kind of the entry, the re-entry of the warheads from space. And I actually think this looks pretty good. It sounds, there's a, there's a sound of like engines and smoke. I don't know if you thought that those were missiles that were flying. They kind of have that look to them. But I, I looked okay. up a bunch of videos of re-entry vehicles, which again, you have a missile it goes from the ground or from a, a submarine. It gets launched into space like a rocket launching a space shuttle. There are stages that kind of break apart. Well, in space, a missile will break into even a smaller portion and you just have the warhead and the delivery system. And a warhead's about the size of a person, maybe a little bit shorter, tends to look like a spherical cone, like an ice cream cone with no ice cream. And that kind of pointy object is the thing that lands on you. It's the re-entry vehicle that has the bomb components on the inside those would look a little bit like they see in the movie they just wouldn't have as much smoke unless there was okay but anyways fortunately the helicopter came back the pilot from earlier the guy at the gym that you disparaged so strongly he said he <laughs> promised to be there and he's there he picks up julie and harry and they start to fly away and we think right it's going to be a happy moment yeah not so much what happens the, the dreaded uh, emp that we've has been used in a plot device as a plot device in so many different nuclear movies. <laughs> you know, it hits the helicopter. There's a white flash detonation. Exactly. And and the pilot said, Oh, it's the controls have been blown out and he can't control the helicopter anymore. Uh, which is silly because I think those are mechanical controls. But anyway, we'll put that aside. <laughs> yeah, and there's there's lots of stuff. EMPs at 
at a ground level, uh, which has kind of seemed like where this bomb went off. It wasn't a high-altitude space detonation where an EMP would actually cause problems, uh, bigger problems. It's, it probably would not... If you were getting that close to a nuclear detonation, you're not worried about the EMP, you're worried about your skin melting, which is what happens to Landa's drugged-out friend. His eyes kind of melt away in a pretty random, gory moment. It was like one of those... I guess they had an effects budget that they needed to yeah. spend some money on. The helicopter, as you mentioned, it's crashing, and it crashes where the movie began. Crashes into the La Brea tar pit and starts sinking. So I thought this is a really good scene. It's starting to sink down. There, You see more incoming warheads off of the distance. Harry and Julie are comforting each other. Julie is rightfully gonna freaking out. Doesn't want to be in where she's at, uh, drowning in tar in a sinking helicopter like a lobster stuck in a, in a water cage. Yeah. But they comfort each other a little bit. There's discussion about how maybe there'll be a direct hit with the, with the incoming warhead, and Harry mentions that oh, they would be turned into diamonds. And that's something that can happen when there's that much heat and pressure. And maybe if it's not a direct hit, someone will find them millions of years from now, you know, holding themselves together. And much like the museum they met at the beginning of the film, maybe their skeletons will be, you know, shown at the museum. And that that seems to comfort them. There's a flash. uh, And then the the end of the movie. Yeah, no, definitely not not a happy ending, um, but uh, a one of many possible endings, and that's I think what the movie was getting at. But no, I I actually thought that the the way that it ended with them and you know in the tar pit that was it's kind of weird that they're in the helicopter, but it, you know I get the point that they'd been at the museum earlier that day looking all, at all these other species that had met their end and mm-hmm. that, you know their time on Earth was over and and now it's it's their turn and and I guess it's kind of the the end to humanity as we know. That's kind of what's implied. And I thought that the way they portrayed everything was pretty strong. Uh, They didn't have a huge effects budget. The director said, you know, we tried to have a bomb, a mushroom cloud in the valley, but our total effects budget was $25,000. So that doesn't get you too much. Yeah. He talks about some outtakes on the Blu-ray, which I'm going to have to check out. Um, I think it's worth talking a little bit here about detonation nano diamonds do you want to talk about detonation nano diamonds for a minute let's talk let's talk uh, nano diamonds <laughs> I, I love it i i'm a i studied some geology in, in college so i know a little bit about uh, regular yeah. diamonds but tell me about nano diamonds well tell me how is a diamond made in nature well, I, I, the, the most common examples that we heard was that uh there would be uh intense heat and pressure uh, either applied through, uh, you know, the crushing and squeezing of rocks that would cause carbon to to rearrange into diamonds, or super hot uh, volcanic activity would come through rocks and would cause these like super hot veins of water that would uh, that would provide the heat and pressure necessary to to create diamonds. Heat and heat and pressure. That kind of stuff happens in the middle of a nuclear yeah. bomb. Detonation nano diamonds are a thing that can happen inside of a high explosive. Because you have this tremendous pressure and heat, as you mentioned, that can compress carbon inside of the explosives, and you get really tiny diamond particles during these detonations. And in 1963, some Soviet scientists found that there were detonation nanodiamonds after examining the remains of a nuclear test that used carbon explosives. And okay. again, is the key thing about this is it was inside the portion of the bomb that's actually a conventional explosive. Uh, you can create these nanoparticles of diamond, and these are really small these are around four nanometers so i don't necessarily know how to describe it very well but it's it's we're talking like 
dust particles, basically. Not uh, the kind of yeah, diamond you right. would put in a museum. It's not the Hope Diamond. It's the, yeah, the you, anti-Hope Diamond when you destroy a nuclear weapon, that kind of a thing. You try to try to make a ring out of that, and the, your significant other will be disappointed, uh, to say the least. I think it works because it's probably something that Harry read in a magazine at some point about diamonds and a nuclear explosion. Obviously, the human body, it has carbons, and it could turn into a diamond, but not if the blast was... You know, from somewhere else, because they're not inside the core of the of the of the bomb. And also, most incoming warheads would not likely be a quote unquote direct hit. Most of these things that target cities tend to detonate in the air, called air bursts. They're like tens of thousands of feet above the air, because if you imagine an explosive creating like a sphere of fire and and pressure, and you want to take that and put it high up in the air so that it can have the most surface area right. once it hits the ground. If you fire warhead to detonate right near the surface, most of that energy is going to be going down into the immediate area and then pushed up uh, and you get fallout. And you would use that when you wanted to destroy like a missile silo. Say you wanted to destroy that missile silo that you visited in South Dakota. (laughs) uh, You would put you would put something right on top of it because you want to have the most pressure in the exact spot. When you're destroying a city, people at the Rand Corporation got pretty good about uh, measuring how far in the air you need to uh, be able to destroy the biggest area. But anyways, that done talking about nano diamonds, I want to talk a little bit about the movie overall, kind of the nuke portion of it before we get into the non-nuke discussion. Roger Ebert liked this movie. He gave it three out of four stars. He said, quote, Miracle Mile has the logic of one of those nightmares in which you're sure something is terrible, hopeless, and dangerous, but you can't get anyone to listen to you. Much of the movie's diabolical effectiveness comes from the fact that it never reveals until the very end whether the nightmare is real or some sort of tragic misunderstanding. And that's why I'm comfortable with your criticism of the movie, not sure if you... Why anyone would believe this, or it seems like a dream. I think the director did a really good job, and he was also the writer of this, to produce that feel. And I think that works, for me at least, why it works as well as it does. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, I I can certainly appreciate that perspective. I, I guess from my side, you know, even the people that he meets that don't know about the attack coming that everyone's acting crazy and off. I mean, even that first scene where Harry and Julie meet, it's just, it's so strange because I can't tell whether they've known each other. They're joking like they've known each other for so long. It's just not the way people act on a first date. Hmm. I mean, this, you know, for example, the scene at the car, at the gas station where the, the racist gas station tenant shows up with a shotgun. I, just like all this random stuff that, okay, I can buy people acting crazy and weird after they find out about the, the missile. But, you know, I almost think there was probably something more to this movie talking about just the, you know, the weirdness of humanity and, and mm. us as a species and some very big points. It just... Something about it did not come together, did not click for me. It, it did not feel like a realistic portrayal of, of how people would act. And, and maybe maybe that's by design. I just, if I had to imagine a nuclear attack happening, I imagine that people would just kind of run away. It, it would just be instinctual. I don't think people would do a lot of these strange things to, uh, you know, as a response to them, like contemplating, you know, their demise and the end of society. I, th- I, I don't think people are that deep. I, I just didn't really buy it. Well, what works really well for me in the movie is because I don't think any of the characters are 100% sure that this is real. It's a lot like the Hawaii missile scare from a few years ago. Right. You get a text message from your government that says, there's an incoming strike from North Korea. What are you going to do? And some people hungered down. Other people, you know, freaked out and started stealing. And 
trying to hide somewhere. I think this, to me, it's a pretty realistic depiction of this. And of course, I think why the movie works so well is because it is it feels a lot like a walking nightmare. There are some weird, quirky things. And I think the the director definitely, like the art direction of this movie looks very weird, even for probably the 1980s, you know, the, with the diner and the clothes that people are wearing and the things that people are talking about. Julie and Harry are like, not your usual people you would see in uh, as leads in these kind of movies. They're not traditionally like it's not like the people they thought of this movie would work at the beginning where they're talking about like Kurt Russell or or Jennifer Tilly, you know, Elizabeth Shue. They're different looking people and I think that that adds to the kind of the art scene with this. Yeah. Some critics didn't understand what the movie was trying to say. The Washington Post uh Rita uh, Kempley, she thought that the movie quote the director set an unsure pace that tries our patience. It seems like he's not committed to the story or his characters, but to the idea that he is saying something profound, which he is not, which I think is pretty ouch, like unfair. I think unfair criticism. I think that the point of this movie is is summed up by the guy on the other side of the phone after Chip gets killed. And he yeah. says, forget everything you just heard and just go back to sleep. I think if you think about that from the perspective of, yeah, you're concerned about nuclear war. Um, sure. Don't worry about it. We got it. Uh, we'll take care of it. We're going to do this in your name and we'll get lucky and you don't have to worry about it. And I think the director mentioned this uh, in a pretty profound way. He says, in some ways, the film was me exercising that nuclear fear, giving other people nightmares. I think I wrote this when the intention was to wake people up and, you know, change the world. Yeah, well, I mean, what I will say is it definitely left an impact. It, it is a movie that I will remember watching. It, it wasn't forgettable, right? I, I may not have enjoyed the way it was done, but or, or really fully bought into it. You know, going back to that previous critic that you were talking about, the Washington Post critic, I, I, I agree with the first part of her criticism, just about, you know, the pacing and, mm-hmm. and all that. I don't agree with the second part. I do think this movie does say something. Uh, and I do think the director is is out to say something. And and frankly, the, the weirdness of a lot of this, uh, it does make you kind of pay attention and be like, what what is going on here? Well, let's let's jump into our parking lot movie discussion. This is where uh, it's a non-nuclear discussion most of the time. It's It refers to the parking lots that my friends and I would often uh, sit in after we saw a movie before we went our separate ways and kind of chatted about the film. How uh, well do you think the movie pulled off this kind of interesting combo of rom-com and thriller? There's a few examples I think of of this kind of fusion, nuke puns, Examples like True Romance, there's this movie that it's okay called Seeking a Friend for the End of the World with Steve Carell, where people are meeting under these really intense situations, sometimes the end of the world. I don't know how well you think it turned off. I think it worked out pretty well. Maybe it's not the strongest piece in the middle of the different kind of quirky trying to figure out stuff, but I think it starts really strong and ends really strong on the romantic side. I disagree. I did not buy into the romance part of it at Mm. all. I I thought the story of them meeting was implausible. I, I didn't understand the meeting and like she's saying I love you to him. And they, I, honestly, I had to go rewatch that beginning because for a while I thought that they were already a couple hmm. um, that was just, you know, had a weird way about them. And so I just I wasn't feeling it. And God, I almost feel like she was almost a, a MacGuffin kind of for him to be going on this, these adventures and everything that it could have just as easily been like his mother or <laughs> like a friend of his or something like that. I, it did not work for me. I agree. She could have had more to do in the movie. 
she does not have a lot of agency beyond a few kind of choice scenes here and there. Some of the stuff you're concerned about probably is coming from the fact that the original script when this first came to the director's uh, mind was to have Harry be a much older person, a much older actor, someone in their, their late middle ages. And this would be someone like returning to Los Angeles and maybe connecting with his ex-wife that he hasn't talked to in a long time. I think at one point he talked about like a Gene Hackman type or a Paul Newman type yeah. for this. And it would be someone where they would already know. He says, oh, it actually would simplify this, right? Like, you don't have to have this set up, this quirky meet-cute, because we just know they used to be together, and now they're going to try to get together again. So maybe some yeah. of that's coming through, and maybe you would have liked it a little bit better if that was this, the story. I think it worked well as, as written to me, but maybe you would like to see a different version of this with that story. No, that's fair. I mean, I, I look, I, I, I can I can appreciate how certain people would see it that way. And yeah, I like Gene Hackman, so that would have probably been better. <laughs> Another question I had is, did you enjoy, it doesn't sound like you did, this kind of pacing of the movie, this real-time pacing, you didn't you didn't enjoy it very much? Um, it wasn't so much the pacing, it was just the, uh, this, the kind of situation, I actually, I enjoyed the idea that it takes place in real time. It did give the movie a sense of urgency, you're wondering how much time was left. I, I think part of the issue was, you're just like watching this and you realize there's so little time left. Hmm. And it just makes you wonder about some of the decisions of the characters. I mean, if I knew that there was a nuclear missile incoming to Washington, D.C., I, I, I'm literally just getting in the car and going, right? Yeah, and, for, but you're leaving behind the people well, that you love I, no, that aren't no, near I, you? I, I, will, I will obviously take my wife, who I've been married to for 10 years, but like my first date, right? Like, <laughs> I... I you know, what if someone steals your car? Like, what happens here? Someone hot wires and steals Harry's car, and then you go, "Well, my next thing I'm going to I'm going to go in this van." Well, it's shoot, it's not getting to the person that I that I think I have a, a romantic connection with. I right, that's that's fair, but I wouldn't have like had this plan to go get her and then go to a helipad and like then get to an airport and all that. Like, I would have just probably broken into a car or gone to like a Hertz or something like. I uh, I'm, I'm usually okay at suspending disbelief, and I don't know, maybe there was something about this movie that. I wasn't able to do it, but it wasn't, I, I enjoyed the real time aspect of it. It just the whole time, like go, like leave the city. What are you doing? Like going back to this building and the helicopter and this and that. And it just, I think they set that up earlier when they say, how far away do you have to be when a nuclear bomb goes off? And someone's like, uh, Mexico, <laughs> like you have to be really far away. Yeah. But I listen to your podcast, Tim, so uh, I, know that it, <laughs> I, I know that I'm, I don't have to actually get that far, but I, I you know, once again, it's. Yeah. I think this is my net with it. I don't I don't think it's like universally bad. I think it just didn't click for me. So I, I loved the real-time pacing of it. I was only going to watch the first bit of this movie while I was wait, uh, waiting for... I put my, my baby to sleep, uh, and I was waiting for him to take an hour nap, and then wake him up to feed him again, because they just eat all the time. And... I was just going to watch the bit of it, and then I ended up fed him, and I, I went back to bed, and I kept watching the movie. So I ended up staying up in a weird way until 3 a.m., finishing this movie, and it was because of the pacing, real suspense, the soundtrack, I thought, kept this movie just roaring all the way through, and it hit me in a way that I just did not want to stop until the end. I thought, I thought it worked really well for me, at least, um, and I'm also happy that they had the dark ending and not the happier ending that they kept trying to push onto the director. I think at one point in the script, Julie might have had a kid from a, a prior relationship, and the movie would end with a story where you would cut away to Landa, and you would see the kid, and they'd be in South America together. And I'm glad they didn't pull that punch. I'm glad it kind of got as dark as it ended up being. I agree. I agree. I would have, I would have, like, I was kind of, at the end, I mean, part of me... <laughs> 
I will admit, part of me wanted to see these characters die because I wasn't like (laughs) loving it. And I'm just like, let's end this. You know, when I saw them with the rescue with the helicopter, I'm like, you know, okay, come on, let's not do this. I'm glad they took that, you know, that that strong statement and and, um, they had the guts to end it that way. Because it's frankly, it's not what audiences want to see, but it's I think it was that was a very effective part of the movie. I, I give them a lot of credit for that. And I think that's part of the reasons why it only was shown in 143 theaters. I think yeah, at the end of exactly. the, 18, the 1980s, people weren't... People don't want to see that. If exactly. this movie came out in 1983, when a lot of other nuke movies came on, it would have been it would have hit perfectly the time period that needed to happen. All right, well, let's. Uh, we probably have already previewed this, but let's do our rating system. Uh, this is where we rate the, 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 the content uh, one out of five, you know, one being the worst, five being terrific. But I like to, since I'm super critical about the content, I like to tailor the system uh, on the, based on the plot that we just watched. I run the numbers here. I, I, ca- I contacted uh, Chip and his uh, dad and, 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 and talked to them about what I should be doing. And let's uh, rate this movie, Miracle Mile, on a scale of one out of five, Pots of coffee at a diner right before you try to escape a nuclear attack at 4 a.m. Wow, yeah. If you've got just one pot of coffee, you might make it a couple of blocks before you need to stop for a quick power nap, and there's no time for that. If you've got five pots of coffee and you're five pots deep, that caffeine rush should power you all the way to Antarctica, and you can uh, wait out the nuclear winter with the penguins. <laughs> I'm going to say this first, because I'm going to give this 4.5. I want more from this director. He basically did this movie and one other, and then some TV and some other stuff. I I would love to see more from this guy. I thought the soundtrack was terrific. I loved the pacing. I loved how tight the script was. I loved the foreshadows and the puns and, and all of that stuff. I, I thought the locations were cool. They'd introduce a location, and then they would return to it later in a different manner. The fact that the movie starts and stops in the same location, combined with the foreshadowing and the dialogue and the plot, I loved it. It doesn't get a full five because there are, as we mentioned, some issues with racial stereotypes, some plotting things with Julie. It would have been nice if she had something to do. That would keep it from being a five. But I I want this movie to be remade today. I think a combination of the Hawaii missile scare, online disinformation, racial injustice that's happening these days, and people just panicking with guns in the streets. I'd love to see this movie, you know, done today. Let's do it. Let's greenlight it to Tim Gabe Production <laughs> Company. Let's make it happen. Well, even the director said this movie could be made today. He says it's more likely to happen tonight than back when the movie was made uh, or when it was written. Everything was on high alert then. Today, the missiles are still pointed. And who's really minding the story these days, both here and in Russia? So I think it'd be a great time to remake this. Uh, Gabe, what would you give it? How many pots of coffee? I'd say three. To me, it's 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 a really good, it was a really good effort, poorly executed. That's the yeah. way I looked at it. It was redeemable. There was a lot that could have made it better. Um, but just some, some you know, so certain plot points that just, I just couldn't buy into for whatever reason I was hung up on. And, and just the kind of like zaniness at times of this that didn't really fit in my mind what they were trying to do. But maybe if you recast it, uh, maybe if you tweak it a little bit, but I, I think that like the fundamental story is an interesting one, an interesting study of people kind of trying to grapple with, you know, the end of the world here and, and just some of the symbolism, some of the stuff that you pointed out that I didn't pick up on. I mean, that, that gives it a, a, you know, a three, a solid foundation, but in my mind, it needed more work to get the extra two stars. Three is not too bad. I'll take that. Yeah. So if people like this, or maybe they were on the fence, uh, like a three, like you, 
Uh, they, may, they may still want to know some more. They may want to read something related or watch something related. And I've got three things, uh, actually four things for this. Uh, one being a simple one. It's kind of a cheating thing. Visit the, the La Brea Tar Pits if you're ever in Los Angeles. It's still pretty cool. I think they're open even though it's COVID. Um, but it's a it's a cool place to go check out at some point. I also recommend the movies Cloverfield from 2008 and 10 Cloverfield Lane from 2016. The first movie has a lot of these elements, though, of bringing two lovers together during a citywide panic. And the second one is literally about people bunkering down in a bunker, unsure if the world is actually ending outside or if it's just John Goodman uh, locking them in uh, for his own kind of uh, pleasures or whatever. I recommend the movie that we covered on the podcast previously, Six String Samurai, the kind of combination of, of like quirky music, quirky scenes, some nuke stuff. Kind of matches pretty well. Uh, the main characters are kind of dressed a little bit, the uh, the Glenn Miller and the, the Buddy Holly uh, yeah. look. And finally, I recommend a book uh, to get a little bit stuffy here by Fred Kaplan, a great writer in the nuke field, The Wizards of Armageddon from 1991. This will give you a really good history of the Rand Corporation and its role in nuclear policymaking. I'm not sure if it mentions in the book who Landa was dating, but I'm sure it's going to give you some ideas. Uh, Gabe, do you have anything you'd like to recommend to people if they've liked uh, Miracle Mile? Yeah, I, I actually have two things that I would um, that I would suggest here. As we mentioned, the Minuteman uh, missile National Historic Site. If you happen to be anywhere near uh, Rapid City, South Dakota, it's near Mount Rushmore and a lot of other stuff, I would say stop by. It was pretty uh, pretty cool. And you can think about, uh, what was his, his name? Chet, making that call from somewhere like there. Chip, yeah. Uh, a chip. Um, uh, second thing, I was, I, I was really obsessed with uh, Diner, which is Johnny's Coffee Shop. So if you're, I guess if you're in Southern California, Go check it out. This is this, uh, once again, the architecture style is googie architecture. And <laughs> there's a whole bunch of, I was looking at this, it looks like there's a ton of these in Southern California as kind of a holdover from that Jetsons 50s style thing. There's one called Norm's Restaurant. You can find them online. Just oh, Norm's, kind of... my, my parents love Norm's. Oh, really? They go to Norm's all the time. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Shout, shout out to my parents who listen to the podcast. There you go. Gabe wants to go to Norm's with you. If it's good enough for Tim's parents, it's good <laughs> enough for me. But uh, yeah, I, I love all that atomic age kind of architecture. Well, great. These are some two solid things to, to recommend to people. It sounds like a road trip from uh, South Dakota to Los Angeles is in people's future. Gabe, thanks so much for keeping this podcast going, despite the fact that it uh, it's mostly just depressing movies. I'll find a nice, a nice happy nuke movie <laughs> to, to watch next. Uh, something you might enjoy. Well, I love it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or you want to tell us what we got wrong, nuke-wise, or maybe I got something wrong about the geography of Los Angeles, there are a couple ways you can contact the show. We're on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast. We're on Facebook. Uh, not for much longer, but um, I got the account on for a little while longer. Might be a 2021 goal for me to get rid of it at Facebook.com slash Supercritical Podcast. And I'm also checking an email account, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer and Gabe. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. Mm-hmm.